Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was an active week uh, with gunplay, sadly, once again. There was a Saturday morning shooting in Burlington, an early morning homicide in uh, Hamilton's East End, and uh, another shooting in St. Catharines. Obviously, uh, this is hand-in-hand hand with a number of the issues that have gone on in the city of Toronto and other cities, for that matter, over the last little while. And it has caused, with a, a municipal election coming up for some politicians or wannabe politicians, to uh, bring up the idea once again of banning handguns, as if that was going to be the sole solution to this. Uh, been there. We've tried that before. Is it a viable solution? What is the problem? What's causing the problem? And how do we address it? Because nobody seems to have a handle on that at this stage. I want to bring Ross McLean into the conversation, crime specialist and security expert, former Toronto police officer. Uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com is uh, the webpage that you want to check out. Ross, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, good to be here, Bill. And listen, your second hour is going to be good talking about the opioid crisis because I believe that ties right into the gun violence. Well, that, that's I, I'm glad you brought that right into the conversation off the top because we need to connect the dots here, don't we, Ross? We absolutely need to connect the dots. Everybody's trying to, well, I say everybody. There's so many, politicians included, trying to deal with this issue in isolation without, by saying all the politically correct problems and things here and there. But the truth is we've got people dying, kids being shot, teenagers being arrested for first-degree murder by the scores, opioid deaths uh, going across our cities, people losing their children, their mothers, their parents, it's just, it, it, they're all connected, all of it. Well, and again, you know, there's a federal election coming up, and we already know that, uh, that uh, the government has asked Bill Blair, uh, the uh, new Minister of Organized Crime Reduction, to look into this idea of a full ban on handguns and assault weapons in Canada. Not the first time we've tried that. Now, Blair, of course, is a former Toronto Chief of Police. Uh, he, he was there. He saw the, the summer of the gun uh, firsthand, what was going on there. Is a ban the answer here, Ross? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, Chief Blair, he is a politician, and, and some would argue he was a politician when he was a police chief uh, in many respects for, for the way he, he managed himself on certain things. But the issue of the banning is not going to work. Uh, the, the one issue I will say that, that could use some support, and I'd like to hear some better solutions and funding on it, is there are some issues around uh, people purchasing multiple guns, and then some of those guns being sold, so they're buying them legally, and some of them are being sold, others are being reported lost. You've got some people in organized crime who get girlfriends and people to order the guns uh, legally. They do it, then the gun disappears, and it makes its way out. So there's some more money perhaps needed to, to look closely at um, the people who are buying the guns. Well, there's a story on Huffington Post this morning that uh, outlined just how easy it is to buy a, a handgun online. And, and which I guess was shocking to an awful lot of people because I thought, oh, no, that's pretty restrictive. You, you've got to go through security checks and everything else. Not so much, really. Yeah, it's, it's tough up here. It's Once again, it gets back into whose databases talk to who and who actually has the, uh, the strength in terms of the bodies to be able to go and do the following up and checking. What we're finding is there's, look, to hire people to do enforcement is expensive, but we're finding out that there's no real substitute for that, uh, Bill. We had the Toronto police chief is making the rounds today to talk about his success with the helping to suppress, as he calls it, the gun violence in Toronto. You know, what they did was they put on the equivalent of 200 extra officers in terms of forced overtime um, to, to work in the troubled spots. And he says they announced 247 gun-related arrests 
and 136 firearms seized. Now, all that's going on within two months, but we still have a record homicide rate on the go here, and you're having your issues as well down in Hamilton. Well, and this is not new to us. Ross, you've been on the program many times talking about some of the shootings that have happened in broad daylight here in Hamilton, downtown Hamilton, uh, residential neighborhoods all over the city right now. And and time and time again, we hear from police of, of all stripes, whether it's Toronto, Hamilton, regional, OPP, that if you want to get a gun, you can get a gun. You just have to know the right person to ask. The right person, who are those right persons? It's going to be the same ones that are dealing the opioids is what it's going to be. I mean, this, this young man just killed in Hamilton over the weekend. He was from Toronto. As I recall, there was uh, a shooting earlier in the summer out in the patio down in Hamilton. That was someone from the GTA area that was down there. You know, what you've seen with this one on the weekends, you've got a gathering of young people to have their after-hours party and do their stuff. Drugs show up. What shows up with drugs but guns with the people who are selling them? It's, it's sort of the franchise that these, these uh, wannabes, as you know, our chief here calls them, high-risk lifestyle or gangster-type people, are involved in. They get the opioids, and the same guy selling the op- opioids say, hey, here's a gun to make sure you collect, and if anybody else is trying to get in your way, you can use this to protect your customers. So young people, guns, drugs, no judgment, no life experience. Uh, this is what we're seeing. When there is an attempt to legislate this, and, and you know, this has happened federally, it's happened a number of times in the past, Ross, uh, with little to no success, of course. Uh, the, one of the problems, as I see it, is is that everybody gets gr- gr- lumped in together. And, uh, uh, for instance, I mean, the, the most recent stats I've seen on this, there are, from all accounts, about over just over a million legally owned handguns in Canada, just over a million and you know, as I do, that probably about 95% of those, or if not higher, uh, are just, you know, used to shoot at targets. I mean, that's all. They're members of gun clubs or they're collectors or whatever the case might be. Uh, and and those, those aren't the people we're targeting, but they're the ones that feel as if they're the ones that are being targeted every time somebody comes along with legislation. And, and so they feel put upon by the government when this sort of thing happens. And at the same time, that other element that you've just described basically go untouched. Yeah, and, and let me tell you, you know, what you just talked about is legislation, which also basically transfers over into regulations, so red tape, so everybody can feel good when they say, oh, here's some red tape rules as to why you're not supposed to have a gun, shoot a gun, and kill someone. Well, the gangsters don't care about that. They, they've got no regard for any of that. You know, just to show you what a growing trend this is, I was just checking out my, you know, my Twitter feed before I came on, and I see that uh, President Trump is talking down at the U.N., and he's leading off with saying we've got an opioid crisis, which leads to the gun problems, which leads to uh, more violence, death, and terrorism. So there, there's very much a chain here. And But we're seeing no restrictions, uh, I see, really coming up to deal with this opioid problem. That's why I think your second hour talking about some of the sources of that. You talk about legal guns becoming used for crime. Well, how about if we're hearing about pharmacists involved, supposedly, in the dealing of fentanyl? There's There's a lot of... Real money in this bill. Big bucks, and we know that from the drug trade. And opioid, of course, is the latest version of the drug trade. And and as police have described to us, and you've talked to us, and you've blogged about this, I don't know how many times now, Ross, uh, when there's big money involved, people feel as if, well, you know, I need protection. And that usually means i got to carry a gun uh, or firearm of some description because there are people that are know this. And that's, this is the phrase that we hear time and time again, right? Uh, some, a targeted shooting. 
which basically means somebody knows that this guy's dealing in drugs or has a lot of money from dealing in drugs, and they want the money. And that's when you get the gunplay. Yep, they want the money or they want them away from uh, from the place where they're selling. And I said it's very easy now. I said I'm sure you'll find out. It's going to be an interesting second hour for you there. How easy it is for kids to get their hands on either prescription pills or a drug press, uh, a little bit of fentanyl. You make a fake pill. It's the fentanyl that gives you the high. It's also the fentanyl that can drop you dead in a heartbeat because the the kid who's making it uh, makes a mistake. They can sell pills that they can make for fifty cents or a dollar each for $50 on the streets. So you'll have kids walking around with a $100,000 franchise, cash money, you know, rolling around with this, and they get guns with that. They have no judgment. And uh, this is where you're going to get into the gunfights. And, you know, and, and look, it's serious for the cops now, too. We just had those two Halton coppers shot, you know, between yeah. in our two cities, right? So this is the point that I'm getting at. This is a, a crime that stretches across the GTA, all the way down uh, to your place, Hamilton, and all the way up to Ottawa as well. They're seeing record violence as well. So this is something that we as a province have to deal with. And, you know, the Premier has come out with, for Toronto anyways, now I think you guys should be yelling for it down the Hamilton way, uh, Crown Attorney teams that are there to make sure people don't get bail uh, very easily, and bail compliance officers. That's the other big problem is there's nobody to check up on these guys once they get out on bail. So these guys know how to work the system, though, Ross. I mean, that's one of the things I think we need to address here, uh, because there are background checks. We get that, and there's a compliance thing that you have to go through. But what I've heard from some of the gangs that that are, are gathering these these arms now, these uh, the ammunitions, it's everything else, is they get one guy of the gang who doesn't have a criminal record. He goes through the course and gets the certification, and he just keeps buying guns for everybody else. It's it's a it's a a big big hole in the system right now that it needs to be addressed. You know, there you go. And I just spoke to uh, a bunch of industry professionals in, in, in loss prevention. And one person in particular uh, works, in the, works with the diamond companies, the wholesalers of diamonds. You know how you're always reading about uh, jewelers being held up, Bill? Mm-hmm. Shootings at jewelers, robbery at jewelry stores. There's a reason for that. They're using diamonds to transact their drugs and to go across the border. It's easier to smuggle diamonds across the border than doing cash transactions. So these drug dealers want a lot of diamonds. That's why they're robbing the jewelry stores at gunpoint. We're seeing these shootings and all these problems. That's just another part of it. It's all tied in together. One of the other things we've heard a time ago, and this is why we talked about some of the people that are legally owning guns, is they say, well, look, at you know, some of these things are acquired through house break-ins because they know that those people are going to be collectors, etc. And that does happen, but, I mean, the numbers... Uh, I, I think bear a different story here. Last year, Toronto Police showed that there were 726 crime guns that were seized, and 148 of those were domestically sourced. That's that's a big number. I get that, but the overwhelming majority did not come from that era. They they came from where Ross across the border. I mean, where are these things coming from? Well, that, this is the thing. I, I I really it's my sense that the uh, the whole GTA area is being flooded with guns. They 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 found a way, and this is where another way where Minister uh, Blair can perhaps help. They've found ways to get these guns across the border. You know, we know that it appears some of them are certainly coming through the reserves that border, that straddle the U.S. and Canada. But there's other ways, too. And the guns are getting in, and there's money for them. And they're being sold for good dollars. And as I said, these drug dealers, they have the cash. They don't care what the price is. So we're, we're really seeing just a plethora of guns. I mean, 
Uh, I talked to some coppers there on the weekend. They tell me every day they're just about dealing with someone with a gun. And it never used to be that way before. And when guns show up at parties, Bill, with kids like it did in the weekend in Hamilton, guess what? Bad things are going to happen. Are they going to sit down and, and actually talk to people on the front line about what might be effective and what might not be effective here instead of simply trying to draft legislation that's going to be some feel-good piece of legislation that uh, they think is going to address the problem? Well, look, uh, I, I, I listen to, once again, and I listen to our chief very closely here in Toronto. Uh, he's a very smart guy. But, but, of course, like every other chief, every other chief in this province, they're weighed under by, by politics, what they can say, what they can say, what they can do, what they can't do. I know that uh, uh, Joe Warmington at The Sun, who you speak to a lot, mm-hmm. he's going to be uh, writing, I believe, today, because the chief even invoked his name when he was talking. They asked the chief about what are you going to do about carding. And uh, the chief basically said, and all the cops know it, you have to target who the criminals are, and you have to stand on their toes. That's not this you know, uh, maligned word of carding and calling it, random stops. I don't know where everybody comes with random stops. As I told you before, there were issues with quotas when they were put on by the police departments. Get rid of those. But the police need to go back to going after the bad guys, staying on top of them, cramping their style, locking them up whenever they jaywalk. That's the only way we're going to start dealing with this. And if we don't, our cities are going to become overrun with this. Well, and you've talked to frontline officers, and I have here in the Hamilton area since uh, this that issue became uh, the big issue in so many people's minds. And, and they say what's it done, what it's done now, the result of this, obviously, is the people that are carrying handguns can walk around freely because they figure, well, the cops are afraid to stop me. They don't kind of talk to me. They are. I mean, I had police tell myself anonymously that they are not doing their jobs. They're afraid to do their jobs because if they do that, they're facing all kinds of problems. You know, I mean, look at look what's going on. I mean, I'm going a little bit off astray here, but not really. Look at all the cops now getting their Narcan, right? So when people overdose, we get so many opioid overdoses, all the cops have to carry a, a little miracle drug that they can squirt into people so that they won't die. But guess what? If the cops do that and the person dies, they have to go through an SIU investigation for doing that. So even if you're carrying a life-saving drug and you're going to a problem, you're like, okay. Here goes the next three, six months of my life as I go through this, right, to try and do your job. So I think we have to get back to letting the police be the police and be the representatives of the community and protecting our sons and daughters, parents and homes and communities like was the original purpose for police. Well, I don't mean to be flippant, but I mean, you know, with the blue metaphor, but there is no silver bullet here. There is no one piece of legislation that's going to be passed that's going to fix this, is there? No, and, and once again, this is what the, the chief talked about in Toronto. I've heard him say this. Now, fortunately, uh, Carolyn Mulroney, the attorney general, is listening to this, what I say, with the bail, with the bail courts being tough and with the bail compliance officers being uh, dealt with. But we also have to deal with, we're going, you know, once again, a little bit of field, but not far, with activist judges. I mean, there was just an opinion handed out. I didn't get a chance to look at it. But a judge, um, some guy with a gun, uh, the Crown uh, wanted four years. The judge gave him, you know, I think 15 months or something with four months off for another problem. And it was because the kid had a hard life. The kid had a hard life, so let's not give him such a hard penalty for using a gun. Well, that's a bad signal that if you get an excuse that you had a hard life that you can use a gun. There's all kinds of people in this world that have had hard lives and don't kill people, don't carry guns, don't deal drugs. And they've had a hard lives. You know, none of us 
get through life without too many scars. But we don't turn to that sort of acting. Exactly. Ross McLean, crime specialist. Uh, always a pleasure, Ross. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big day in New York City today. The uh, United Nations General Assembly gets underway, and uh, the 73rd UN General Assembly. Uh, the Prime Minister is there today lobbying. Uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago that he was not going to be addressing the General Assembly, but he's there nonetheless because uh, they're looking for a seat on the UN Security Council. Now, this is something that's been going on for the last little while. And by the way, it's, it's uh, not until 2021 that they're actually going to vote on this, but uh, they're stumping and handshaking and trying to get everything done about this. By the way, coincidentally, while the Prime Minister is in the UN building today, so is Donald Trump. He is addressing the General Assembly today. Will there be a, an off-the-record discussion? Will they talk about NAFTA? Uh, who knows? Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the discussion, business professor at the Groot School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, great to have you with us. Thanks for the time today. Glad to be here, Bill. What's, what, is, is this a big deal, this, uh, this uh, seat on the, uh, the, the, the Security Council for the U.N.? Is it a big deal? Well, over time, Canada has been on the Security Council, and, and I suppose most famously, it was actually chaired by Lester Pearson once upon a time. It was at, during the, one of those sessions that the idea came up for peacekeeping forces in the world, and that's a Canadian idea, and it actually won uh, Lester Pearson a Nobel Prize. Uh, we have been thinking we should be on the Security Council for the better part of a decade, but Stephen Harper uh, didn't earn any friends internationally, and we, we just couldn't uh, get that seat. Now, to the world, the concern about putting Canada on Security Council is, are we simply the United States puppet? Is the United States getting two votes suddenly on Security Council? Remember, there are five permanent members. The other people rotate on and off as they go forward. And I certainly think today, if there's been a benefit of the election of Donald Trump, it's a proof that Canada is not anybody's puppet, at least certainly not America's puppet, and I think that's helping to bolster the cause. Uh, and certainly Justin has raised our profile and created a lot of goodwill. Other than that, just being part of the club, being and taking that responsibility, there's no other benefit to Canada. Uh, but I think we feel it's our time to be there and our turn. We should, we should do what we can to be there. It just seemed as if in the initial uh, era of the U.N. that uh, the Canada seemed to have a more significant role. Uh, and you mentioned Lester Pearson, of course, and that was uh, some time ago. I, I can even remember watching uh, some of the coverage of the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1962, Marvin, right. and uh, a fellow by the name of George Ignatieff was the Canadian ambassador to the UN, and they were on the Security Council at that time. Of course, his, his son Michael tried to become the prime minister. That didn't go too well. But but have, I don't know that we've been on recently, have we? Oh, no. We, ha we haven't been on the Security Council for nearly 20 years, okay. and, and that makes some sense. There is 183 countries in the world, and if uh, only five permanent members, the other people rotate on and off. You can't be there all the time, but the feeling had been that it was our turn, it was our time, but that feeling goes back nearly 15 years ago, and, and we just couldn't do it because... Fifteen years ago, Canada was seen as being too closely allied to the United States. Right now, though, uh, that, that perception has changed dramatically. And I know, again, people will talk about Justin Trudeau as a victory of style over substance, but that style, in contrast to Donald Trump's style, actually says we've got the best shot we've ever had to getting back on the Security Council. But with that in mind, uh, the, the betting right now is that, well, we're probably in third place uh, for the one seat here. Uh, and apparently we're trailing Ireland and Norway. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised completely at that. So remember that where are the bulk of these 183 nations? Uh, many of them are in Africa. Many of them are in Asia. Um, and so therefore, sort of that one big supercontinent of Asia, Europe, and Africa, they tend to look at each other. And again, if I'm Ireland or I'm, I'm Norway, I am very much distinct from this American block up in here. So he, he's got some work to do here. Now, uh, Norway has had its challenges, certainly under the refugee crisis, by not taking refugees. We stepped up last year, taking a large number from Syria, and that was very impressive on the world stage. Um, Ireland has also recently changed some of its rules. It took a long time, given its Catholic background, to recognize a gay marriage, but that's now been done. So, yeah, you've got three very progressive nations there, and it's a luxury of riches if I'm one of the world leaders voting on this, because all three of them would be suitable candidates. We just feel it's our time, and that's why we have to press a little flesh. Uh, the Ireland situation is interesting, because you figure a little tiny country like that, but apparently uh, they uh, are, are well known because of their commitment to U.N. peacekeeping efforts, uh, uh, something that's been a little controversial in Canada recently. Are, are we a good U.N. member? Are we, are we you know, making all the right moves and saying all the right things? To that question, yes, we are, are talking the talk. The question becomes, are we walking the talk? And I would say that uh, in terms of peacekeeping, more recently we have not been doing as much as we once did. Proportionately, our peacekeeping efforts are, are poorer than they were 15, 20 years ago. We were actually more engaged that way. Part of that, of course, is due to our thinner resources. You know, we have some antiquated ships, we have some old planes, and we can't deploy them. We, we Troops are one thing, but we also need to deploy technology. So I think, again, if Justin can make some promises to people that we're renewing those planes, we're renewing those uh, ships, uh, and we will be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the rest of the world in peacekeeping, that would be a great assurance. But again, he needs to walk that talk. He needs to start spending some of that money. Bill, if, I, if I'm going to be critical of Justin Trudeau at all, remember he's now been in power for nearly three years. Uh, he's said a lot of good things on the defense file, but he's not actually done very much. I thought by now we would have sorted out some of these issues around planes and ships um, and that we're still talking about them worries me a little bit in terms of making our case to the world that we should be on the Security Council. Well, there's another story this weekend about that, you know, that uh, the, the defense minister says we're really, really, really close to deciding who's going to build these new ships for us. Uh, that's, that was, that's three years ago they made that commitment. Yeah, they were really, really close three years ago. They're even closer now. Uh, maybe they're having problems pulling the trigger because these are expensive things. I, I don't think, Bill, as we talk about this, we should trivialize it. You know, new planes, new boats, a billion dollars a piece. That you know, that's not a surprising thing. There's a tremendous amount of technology now in these uh, in these uh, 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 peacekeeping things that we need. Uh, it's not an inexpensive proposition. And remember, this is a government going into an election next year that has been. Uh, or is continuing to be stung by its deficit spending. So how much more do I increase the deficit? My, I'm guessing what's happening here is Minister Morneau is hoping that if he can bring down the amount of money he needs to borrow to sort of run the country, then they can ramp a little bit back up to help pay for the initial defense. But how much and how fast, I think that's what they're working on right now. If they are fortunate enough to be selected for this uh, Security Council seat, how long do they sit there? I think it's a five-year term. Okay. Uh, so you're you're not again you're not there forever, but I believe it's a five year term, and and you might say all of this effort just to be there for five years. But I think again it's trying to make a statement about Canada on the world stage. Um, we are a member of the G7 nations, although frankly again if you look at the size of our economy, we aren't the seventh largest economy in the world. 
Now, that's in part because China's not a member of the G7, and, of course, Russia is no longer a member of the G8 at that time. So there are some other economies that vie with this. So how do we keep ourselves relevant on the world stage? Um, there would be many people in Ottawa that would hate to imagine that we'd be dropped from the G7 and relegated to the G20, the 20 largest nations in the world. So what can we do to keep our profile I think that's where Security Council recognition would make, make people say, oh, yes, okay, that's a, that's a country worth reckoning with. That's why it's part of that exclusive seven-nation club. Well, because he's tried to talk that talk at the G7 and the G20 meetings. I mean, I think there's been a concerted effort to try to raise Canada's profile with some of the things that he has done, or some of the things he said at those meetings anyway, and it would dovetail nicely to get this, uh, this UN gig. It would, and, and certainly since we're, we have been standing up to Mr. Trump, stage when it comes to these tariffs and negotiating NAFTA. Uh, certainly, no one today is of the opinion that Justin Trudeau is Trump's lapdog on any of this. He is a very skilled politician when he talks about Trump. He doesn't take him on directly, but he also doesn't rubber stamp everything Donald says. And I think for the world, that's a great reassurance today. Um, and, and for all I know, depending upon how these NAFTA negotiations turn out, we might get awarded the, uh, the Security Council seat as a consolation prize. You know, okay, Mr. Trump raked you over the coals really badly, so let's give you a little something to make you feel better. The world might award us that in, in lieu. Speaking of Mr. Trump, uh, yes. he's in the same building today. Uh, he's going to be addressing yes. the General Assembly. Uh, the Prime Minister is going to be there. Uh, they've got some stuff to discuss. Is there any chance of it? I know there's no official meeting that's scheduled now, but I mean, if they bump into each other in an elevator or something, uh, is there a perchance per an opportunity for them to sit down and say, hey, about that NAFTA deal? Well, uh, the answer is maybe, uh, although we're not directly negotiating with Donald, so even how current he is with the file is always a question. Let me first start with Donald, and then I'll come back to your question directly. What we're going to be watching in Donald Trump's speech, last year it was uh, really just a bombshell that he got up there and spoke, because he began by saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to make my country great again. And by the way, all you people, you should be focused on making your country is great again, too, which is not the message of the United Nations. The United Nations is that we should be working together to make a better world. Trump was actually signaling a lot of isolationism. So he's had a year to mellow. Is his speech going to be different? Is he going to embrace the true mission of the United Nations? And is he going to suggest the United, uh, the United States has a role to play in this greater world order? Or is he going to signal more isolationism that, again, this is all about me and all about us, and I don't really care about you? And so we're going to be watching that closely. Now, in terms of, of Justin, if they were to run into the hall, yes, I suppose there, there could be a little discussion. But since Trump isn't up on the file, I'm not sure it'd be very productive. Now, what I've been led to believe is that Christia Freeland is also in New York this week. Um, Robert Lighthizer plans to be there, as does Wilbur Ross. That side conversation is the much more important. Um, and, and, Bill, I would also say to you, our discussions ended last Thursday. Christia Freeland hosted uh, many foreign ministers in Montreal on Friday. So when they break off these discussions, as they did Thursday afternoon, it's not shake hands and go away. They normally give each other things to study. So, okay, we've talked all day. I want you to think about this, and the next time we get together, let's talk about that. So there could be side discussions. Remember the deadline imposed by the Americans is September 30th. 
that that comes up on Sunday, next Sunday, so we are just a week away. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world if we miss it, but if we're really close, let's use this to get some more momentum going. And that's what we don't know. Mr. Lighthizer and, and Ms. Freeland have been very close-lipped when they talk to the press. Uh, I was watching Cable 14 on the weekend, and Jessica Brennan said she wants that script to change. She's getting tired of we're working hard and we're making progress. She wants something more substantial. But they aren't negotiating in public, so we don't know how close they are. But I have to believe that a little push, probably a compromise on Canada's part, but also a compromise on the Americans' part, we might have a deal. Would New York be the place to do it, get everybody out of their home base? Maybe. We'll just have to wait and see. Well, I, I finished uh, Woodward's book, uh, Fear, over the weekend, Hopefully and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's obvious just based on, on and it's it's pretty credible stuff, of course, that Woodward writes. Trump reads nothing. He has he doesn't read briefing notes. He doesn't listen to anybody, and he will just dismiss people out of hand that try try to say anything that's contrary to his mindset. So this is really Lighthizer's baby. I mean, I know Trump's the one that's mm-hmm. giving all the bluster and everything, but I mean, he he's he's. First of all, he's a protect. You know, he's as you mentioned, he's a protectionist. The speech he gave last year at the UN was that was pure Steve Bannon, and the trade policy that Trump adheres to is purely Steve Bannon. In other words, to hell with everybody else in the world, just look after ourselves. And you got to wonder if some of the other folks uh, that have a little more, uh, I-, I guess, open mindedness about this sort of thing are finally going to get his ear. Yes, or let me use another term, political acumen. You know, that, that tone that we have to win everything and you have to lose just doesn't play in international circles. I've never seen that tone played out before, and it makes America seem like a bully, and I don't think that's a good position for them in the 21st century. But you can let the leader do that. It's the people underneath him, his lieutenants, for lack of a better term, and how they operationalize his strategy that makes a difference. I, I would tell you that I have time for Lighthizer. I don't think he is simply a puppet of Donald Trump. I think he has an independent mind, and I think he, when they sit down and have these earnest discussions on, on the largest trade deal between two nations in the world, no one should again kid themselves. This is why it's so complicated. Trade between Canada and the United States is the biggest trade agreement between two nations in the world. I, I think Lighthizer gets that, and he understands that it's a very complicated thing. He's also got to sell it to his boss at some point. So chances are if there's got to be a compromise. He's got to be able to say to the boss, sure, I gave them a little here, but look at this great thing I got over here, Donald. Uh, uh, if you will, distract him by a big shiny object, and that may work just fine. He's got to have a shiny object. And I think that's the question for Christia Freeland. Can she find a way to give them that? The way I understood it last week, we were so close. One concern has been around intellectual property rights. Uh, Americans, especially guided by American drug companies, feel that the patent protection on drugs is too short. Today, it's uh, uh, 20 years. They'd like to see it go up to 25 years. Canada, who believes in institutionalized medicine, you know, we feel pretty good at 20 years because then we can get uh, competitors making generic versions of them and bring our drug costs down. So I'm sure there's some healthy discussion going on there. But again, clever people confronted with a deadline should be able to make some intelligent compromise. I will be now, Bill, one of those people who believe that I I don't want to see this get past September 30th. It's not the end of the world if we do. Yes, we could sign a deal on October 3rd or 4th or 10th, whatever it happens to be. But I think we are so close, we need to do what we can to push it over. If there are some areas that we don't like, put them aside and deal with them in the next round of talks. We can always fix it down the road, but I think we have a unique window right now to get a deal. I'd hate to see us lose that. Why then haven't we done that before? It seems as if you know that, that we've come close before, uh, and then all of a sudden something seems to come up at the last minute. 
Well, I think I think the feeling has been that regardless of what Mr. Trump feels, that we have friends in Congress, we have friends in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Uh, you may have heard, for instance, a month ago when Mexico signed on that many of the people in Congress said, we won't approve a deal if Canada is not there. But with the midterm elections looming, I'm also getting a little sense that our friends are getting a little tired of us. And yes, we understood you needed time, but look, it's been four more weeks. How much more do you have to talk about, especially when you tell us you're down to the last few items? Come on, find a way to make this deal come forward. So even our friends are now changing their tone a little bit and saying, now is the time. And and a bit like the Americans, they want this deal signed by the Mexican president they know rather than the Mexican president they don't. I would like to get this deal in front of the Congress we know rather than the next Congress, even though my gut tells me there's going to be more Democrats and Democrats are our friends. You know, I don't know that for certain. We do have a Congress today prepared to do something. If we can get them something by October 1st, gosh, I'd hate to see us lose that window. Well, the opportunities there, it just seems all the principals are going to be in New York City over the next couple of days. You'd like to think that something like that could happen. Marvin, thanks as always. Anywhere, it'll happen there. Well, hope so. Hope so. Hope you're right. Thanks again for the time, Marvin. <laughs> Anytime, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to draw your attention to a, a special series that uh, actually debuts tonight on Global National at 6:30 with Donna Friesen. It's uh, a rather troubling story. It's called Dispensing Harm. Now, we've talked at great length, of course, about the opioid crisis and, and the implications and, and the, some of the reasoning behind this, why it's happening. But uh, this uh, series, this three-part series that starts tonight on Global National, is going to shed a totally different light on this and a different twist on it altogether. And uh, to uh, give you some insight as to what we're going to actually be talking about, I want to bring Carolyn Jarvis into the program. Carolyn, of course, is network investigative reporter on Global News, and uh, she, of course, will be uh, front and center on this uh, three-part series tonight. Carolyn, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Listen, we've, we've talked at just about every angle. At least I thought we'd talked just about every angle about the mm-hmm. opioid crisis over the last couple of years. This is bizarre, what you're going to be talking what you what you're going to reveal today. Yeah, in fact, members of Ontario's Emergency Opioid Task Force haven't been talking about this topic. It hasn't hit the radar at all, is what one of the members of that committee told us. Pharmacists who move from drug dispensers to drug dealers and contribute to the growing opioid epidemic in this country. They go about it a variety of ways. And let me underscore that this is a very, very select few pharmacists. The vast majority of pharmacists in our province are not only upsetting citizens, but are helping curb the opioid crisis with Um, many proactive measures. However, I was told by experts, and we saw the evidence ourselves, that when a pharmacist becomes a drug dealer, even if the cases are few, you can't ignore them because their access to supply and huge volumes of supply is vast, and so the potential for harm is great. Well, we've heard stories of of pharmacists and, and frankly, other people in the medical profession, doctors and others, that that do have access to this, that have become users. But but to actually be... (laughs) In, in the business of doing this, and, and I know that you, uh, you articulate this by actually talking about a, a particular case uh, of a pharmacist, uh, and uh, you, you describe what was a quote-unquote robbery in his pharmacy. The whole thing was a scam. It was unbelievable. This was an Ottawa pharmacist named Wasim Shaheen, who was found guilty, charged, convicted, sentenced to 14 years in prison, although I might note he is appealing, uh, for faking a robbery at his own store, a store that he owned and managed, and had trafficked 5,000 maximum-strength fentanyl patches onto the street. Um, Many of those he moved through, a known drug addict. 
when a technician at his pharmacist realized there were vast inventory discrepancies between what was coming into the pharmacy and what was going out, he notified the Ontario College of Pharmacists and the police. And to try to cover his tracks, this pharmacist conspired with the drug addict, and there's a secret cell phone recording of that conversation. It's unbelievable to stage a robbery at his own store, and then there's security video of that robbery. And we get to see the whole thing unfold just as laid out in the conversation. And then a 911 call where, curiously, he can't really describe the man who just robbed him because he wants him to get away. It is all straight out of a movie, and very sadly, it's real life with real-life consequences. And again, I know you're going to repeat this numerous times over the course of these uh, three-part series. Uh, This is a small percentage of pharmacists that may be uh, doing this. But has it raised the the, the eyebrows of the people in the industry right now? I mean, are they doing more self-policing within the industry? You know, I think that there are tools in place right now that could have caught this but didn't, perhaps because they are not engineered in such a way to be looking for it. Health Canada only started inspecting pharmacies in 2015 when this operation was already underway, uh, and it only touched 3% of Ontario pharmacies last year. Ontario's Ministry of Health has a very sophisticated narcotics monitoring system, which says in its very mandate that it could flag criminal activity. But they're not using it that way. We, the taxpayers, are paying for it, but they're not using it in a way that it would flag this sort of behavior. They're only looking for people that might go to multiple pharmacies with a prescription, what's called polypharmacy. But they're not looking for pharmacists who could be the bad guy. So I actually think there are tools already in hand that could help curb this issue. We're just not using them that way yet. So hopefully our investigation could open people's eyes to a new way of thinking about this to help curb what are a small subset of pharmacists that are using the system to their advantage. Because we've talked about that in the past. I mean, there are, there are abuses, of course, in the system, but oftentimes there are, there are customer abuses, as you say, people trying to fulfill mm-hmm. multiple prescriptions at different pharmacies uh, to try to accumulate uh, whatever fentanyl or whatever it might be in a situation like this. But did you get the impression, as you were talking to the people in the industry about these, these cases, though, Carolyn, that the, their, their attitude was that we didn't see this coming? Oh, for sure. The executive vice president of the Ontario Pharmacists Association said, as I, you know, he sits on the emergency opioid task force. He said it has not hit the radar at all. We have not thought about this. This is not something we've been talking about, and probably because it, it, it's taken until you know a group of journalists came together and created a database on our own, hand-packed into our keyboards, uh, of the wrongdoing committed by all pharmacists going back five years that we were able to connect the dot and find this. And people don't necessarily have that sort of time at their disposal. And then we were able to expose where the shortcomings may lie. And you know, I think that. Both the College of Pharmacists, both the Ministry of Health and Health Canada at the federal level have a role to play. And certainly on Wednesday on Global National at Night, that's the third part of our series, we'll be really digging deep into the systems at place that could have caught this and didn't. You mentioned collaborative effort. I want to talk about that for a second. Uh, uh, we've got, obviously, incredible stu- people like yourself working in investigative reporting at Global, but uh, uh, you've reached out to the Toronto Star Ryerson School of Journalism. This was a, this was a team effort, wasn't it? Well, credit where credit's due, they actually reached out to us, which is great. Um, And so we work together. This is the future of journalism. Many journalists, including myself, believe that in the unfortunate state of uh, conventional media today, you need to reach across the pond, you need to check egos aside, and you need to serve in the interest of the people that read, listen, and view your stories, uh, the public. And, And that's what we've come together to do in this instance, bring a piece of journalism which we believe is in the public's interest, which is very important to our democracy and to... Uh, positive society, and bring it to the front page and do that together. 
And you'll see the fruits of all that hard work, of course, during this three-part series that does debut tonight uh, on Global National at 630. Uh, are there red flags? I mean, now that you've raised awareness about this and, and the people within the industry, the different facets of the industry, uh, are aware to look for this, uh, I mean, there are some things that you look in hindsight, Carolyn, and say, well, didn't they see this coming? And one of them would be that supply chain. In other words, if there's this particular pharmacist or one who's alleged to have done this sort of thing, uh, has got to be ordering a lot more product than you would think is normal, and, and nobody seemed to, to raise any issues about that. It's a, you know what? It's, it's like, you're like the pharmacy expert I just spoke with last week. <laughs> well done. Uh, yes, in fact, Dr. David Urlink, who's one of the foremost uh, drug safety researchers from University of Toronto and the Sunnybrook Research Institute, said exactly that. He said, what about that supply chain? We should be looking at distributors. Who's shipping the most and which pharmacies are receiving them? And guess what? Health Canada does not track that information. In the States, not only do they track it, but distribution companies are required by law to report any shipments that they would deem suspicious. And when they haven't, distributors have been faced with massive fines in the hundreds of millions of dollars they've had to pay. The same companies that exist in Canada exist in the States, and they're being fined millions and millions and millions of bucks. And it's just not happening here. And that's what I find just astounding, really, that with something as, as dangerous as, as what they're dealing with here, with the opioids, that there would be a tracking system and, and, and some sorts of, of, of system, not just, of course, from the suppliers, but within the pharmacy itself. In other words, you know, the paperwork should be monumental here. Mm-hmm. So you understand exactly where this stuff is going. And, and they just seem to have thrown their hands up and said, ah, no, no problem. Well, I mean, technically, they can go and audit it at any point, but... Uh, we have no proof to show that that is happening, and the data, the information is not being funneled to Health Canada itself, so they can do it whenever they want. They say that they're going to close that loophole with an amendment to the Narcotics Control Act that will require suspicious shipments of opioids to be reported, but they couldn't even tell us when that was going to happen. So, yeah, there are definite um, problems here within the system that could be hopefully rectified rather easily, and we hope that that will happen. There are so many holes in this legislation, though, and and, and, I, and I guess you'll, you'll have to focus on the, this pharmaceutical assistant that actually decided to, to blow the whistle and say, hey, wait a minute, something's going on here. And, but isn't it great that somebody had the guts to do that? Yeah. That's a young employee at the outset of his career that had the guts to and the gumption to blow the whistle. And in almost every case we profile, the pharmacists were done in by dumb luck and by chance, a tip. Um, um, somebody getting ensnared in a tangential police investigation in another instance. This wasn't because one of the systems in place caught them. They didn't. We're talking a lot of money here, aren't we? Oh, for sure. In the instance that we profiled today, the fentanyl patches alone were worth a million dollars on the street. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there a, a subset? Is there an industry here? I mean, are these guys working as lone wolves, or is there a network of, of, of people that are doing this? Are, are they sharing this money? I mean, you got to no. wonder how extensive this is. I don't see this being as a coordinated thing. I mean, what we need to underscore is these are one-offs. These are pharmacists that are doing it in different parts of the province at different times um, of the year. We, there's no there's no indication that any of this is coordinated. But, you know, as the judge said in his ruling in the Shaheen matter, that's the Ottawa pharmacist, the only apparent motivation here was greed. And greed is a powerful magnet when employed. And and there's more to it than greed, though, as as I know you're going to talk about in the in the series here. I mean, you, you're putting people's lives at risk when you're putting this stuff out on mm-hmm. the streets. And they have to know that. That's the thing. I mean, the College of Pharmacists is very proactive in making sure that these pharmacists have frontline training to know what to look for with opioid addictions, to know how to curb it, to know you know when you're uh, prescribing methadone or naloxone for people who are addicts. I mean, they see these people more than you and I would, and 
these people knew the potential for harm, and they did it anyways. Well, I, I, it runs so contrary to what we, we expect from pharmacists. And, and again, I, I will emphasize, yes, this is a small percentage of people that do this. But, you know, they're the ones that are saying, oh, wait a minute, you got this prescription. You know, you're already taking this. Uh, this could be harmful to you. This guy is actually putting people in harm's way. And, and I, I don't know if there's any way to quantify exactly what kind of damage has been done by this or anybody else that's doing this sort of thing. But it's pretty frightening. Oh, absolutely. It is frightening. I mean, we were in court to obtain evidence related to these cases, and while we were awaiting our turn, uh, people came up before the judge with opioid addictions. Mothers were sobbing in the room. And these are the survivors whose lives are shattered as a result of this addiction. Uh, there are many more that, that, that don't live to see another day because the grips of this drug are so powerful, they pull you down with it. Were you surprised by what you were finding as you went, went through this investigation? You know, I have to be honest, initially when, we, when, when I saw this, I thought it was so few that I was inclined as a journalist because I never want to be sensational in the reporting to, to say, ah, so few, you know, I don't see it. Maybe the pattern isn't here. Perhaps we shouldn't give this too much weight. But it was when we dug into this that we spoke with the people who said, you cannot turn a blind eye to this. Look at the totals here. The one patch is cut into four. That's four lethal doses. Here's one guy that put 5,000 on the street. Another drug enforcement officer said to me, the most I've ever caught on a street-level dealer was 500 patches. You have a guy that trafficked 5,000? Yeah, you can't, you can't not report on that. The numbers are staggering. They really are. Uh, and and it, it gives us a different angle to this. And, and, and I know it was global, I guess about a year, year, year and a half ago, they talked about the doctor that was actually uh, stealing from himself and, and became hooked. He's, he's, I guess, gone to jail now as a result of uh, the, the trial that went on like this. And, and we're shocked by this. But this is, this is something, well, to use the phrase we used a minute ago, that I don't think too many people saw coming. And, and, and you have to wonder uh, how the courts are going to deal with something like this. Now, he's been, uh, he's been convicted already, this individual? Yeah, he was convicted, and he is appealing his sentence. So he asserts his innocence related to this matter, and he will have an appeal, and we'll see what happens on that. At last word, he was out on bail. No word whether he's returned yet to custody or not. Uh, but the judges have been very heavy-handed, some, so some say, or just might argue another. Uh, a 14-year sentence is no laughing matter. In another, um, Ottawa, uh, rather, in another instance of a pharmacist in London, Ontario, he was handed an 11-year sentence. So... The sentences are very serious, and the judges are sending a, a message of deterrence in their sentencing. Uh, you're very thorough in your reporting, Carolyn, and your investigations on this. i got to assume you asked, and I would think also that he declined to, uh, to appear with you on this interview. Uh, Mr. Wasim, yeah. Shaheen, the Ottawa pharmacist, yes, we pursued him multiple times. We tried to approach him at his house. We went through his lawyers, and uh, they declined to speak with us, unfortunately. But um, certainly the court record speaks for itself. Absolutely does. It starts at 6.30 tonight on Global National and uh, with uh, Donna Friesen, of course. Uh, Carolyn Jarvis, the, uh, the lead, uh, the investigative reporter on this for the Global News. It's called Dispensing Harm. And uh, you've got to watch this, all three parts of it, because there are different facets of this uh, very troubling uh, angle to what's happening in the opioid crisis. Uh, again, Carolyn, congratulations on the great work that you and the, the team have done on this. And we look forward to watching the, uh, the finished product tonight on Global National. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Always a pleasure. Take care. Carolyn Jarvis, of course. Watch for her tonight on Global. Uh, and, and it just gives us a whole different angle on, on what's happening here, because we wonder, where's this stuff coming from? How do people get this? How do they get hooked on this? And and look at there are bad apples, okay? There are, there are one or two bad cops. There are one or two bad teachers. We get that. And we don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, and, and that's certainly not the intention here. But it is important that we shine the light on all of these problems and all facets of these problems, 
because we're not going to get this thing under control and, until we actually understand just where it's coming from and the and the depth and breadth of uh, of the problem itself. And I think this uh, three part special on Global Tonight will do just that. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.